Mean Old Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge because, as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast, Pregnancy Pearls, with Dr. Plenty. Been listening to Pregnancy Pearls podcast with me, Dr. Nicole Plenty. How's everybody been doing? Well, if you're anything like me, you started your Christmas shopping on Prime Day. You know, Prime Day was October 10th and 11th. There are some really good deals um, pre Halloween, I guess. Like everybody's trying to get their Christmas shopping done really early because, it, let's face it, like once December happens, everybody's sort of living check to check and praying uh, through the month of January, right? So we're not going to do that this year. So I am definitely shopping and planning early. But like last week, Target had sales. Walmart also had sales last week and this week. So, I mean, look out for all the sales that's coming. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm ready for Christmas. And I'm hosting Christmas this year. So I know it's going to be amazing. And I cannot wait. But um, you know what? I still have to find Halloween costumes for me and Harrison because there is still two more holidays between now between now and Christmas. And this year, Harrison wants to dress up like Detective Alex and Detective Jason, which are like there's a YouTube show. Um, I think it's like Adventures of Detective Alex and Jason. But um, I think they're like a son and a um, a dad and a son, or maybe it's the son, uh, the, a child and his uncle. I don't know, but it's like an adult detective and a child that's like eight. And they go around riding in like really expensive cars to catch the bad guys that get out of jail, right? And so they ride in a Lamborghini the most often. So that's why Harrison wants Santa to bring him a toy Lamborghini to ride on, like a Powell Lamborghini. But either way, um, I guess we're going to dress up as Detective Jason and Alex. But I don't know which one I'm going to be. I guess I'm going to be whatever one Harrison doesn't want to be. But um, yeah, I will be a male detective for Halloween. But either way, you do anything for the children, right? Well, last week, we talked about how not having enough fluid around your baby can affect your pregnancy. So guess what we're going to talk about this week? Yep. We're going to talk about having too much fluid around your baby and how that can affect your pregnancy. Now, when we talk about too much amniotic fluid, that's called polyhydramnios. And sometimes you hear it simply stated as hydramnios. See, hydro mean water. Amos, I guess it means too much, but hydramnios, okay? When, uh, when I say too much fluid, that really means if you have a single deepest pocket of amniotic fluid, over eight centimeters, or um, or if you have oligohydramnios or too little fluid, like we talked about last week, that would be two. That be under two centimeters. So remember, we divide the belly into four quadrants, with the belly button being the center, and we want to measure the fluid around the baby in each of those quadrants. Okay. And so, if you have any pocket that's over eight centimeters in depth, that's too much fluid. Or if they add up to over twenty-five centimeters in depth. That is also consistent with too much fluid or polyhydramnios. Now, polyhydramnios, aka too much fluid, 
this occurs in about one to two percent of all pregnancies. I'm a high risk specialist, so I feel like it occurs in like 50 percent of all pregnancies. Right. Because I'm seeing everybody that has something suspected to be abnormal. Doesn't mean it's abnormal because most of the time it's not abnormal. But if it's a suspect in the pregnancy, then I'm sent it. So, of course, it's going to be a little bit more common in my practice than it is in a general OBGYN's practice. Now, most cases of polyhydramnios are mild and result from a gradual buildup of amniotic fluid, which is, remember, the fluid around your baby in the uterus. This happens during the second half of pregnancy. Severe polyhydramnios may cause, you have some symptoms though. So, symptoms include, you can have shortness of breath, you can have preterm labor or other signs and symptoms, okay? People can have um, inability to, uh, to, to breathe or feeling like they have heart palpitations. Some people may feel like they're going to faint. Some people may have um, preterm labor. And sometimes the baby is in an unstable position. So instead of being head down, the baby's breech or sideways. And that's because the baby has a lot of room to just move around, okay? Like swimming in the fluid, okay? And so that's why... Um, some babies that have a lot of fluid are not just head down, even towards the end of the pregnancy. The head just doesn't become engaged in the pelvis because there's too much fluid. Now, polyhydramnios is not just something like, oh, you have a lot of fluid. It can cause some complications, and that's why it needs to be monitored. So it is associated with a higher risk of you just going into labor, right? Having preterm contractions without dilation because you're literally that fluid is really stretching the uterus, which is just a big muscle. And it can even lead to you actually going to labor and having the baby preterm. Some people, their water can break. That's called pre-labor, preterm rupture, excuse me, pre-labor, premature rupture of membranes. And um, that means your water can break early. Some people can have what's called a placental abruption. And that's when the placenta separates from the inside wall of the uterus before you actually deliver the baby. And that can cause you to have some bleeding and pain. If you're dilated and your water breaks, the cord can also prolapse through or come through the cervix into the vagina. And if that drops into the vagina ahead of the baby, then obviously the baby could compress the cord and that can cut off uh, circulation to the baby. So that's considered a surgical emergency. So if you ever have a, a prolapse cord, which I think we really need to talk about on this show, we will, then you need to elevate the uh, head if you can get up there or push the cord back inside if you can, okay? And then it does lead to a higher risk of C-section because babies can tend to not be head down. Some people that have polyhydramnios, especially late in the pregnancy, have an increased risk of stillbirth. And after delivery, it can cause people to have heavy bleeding because the uterine muscle or um, what's called the myometrium, or the muscular layer of the uterus, is stretched out so much that it's hard for the uterus to contract back down um, to control bleeding after delivery. So the, the uterus stays, the muscle stays sort of weak. And if you have weak, floppy muscle, it can tend to bleed. So we want to always wait for the uterus to be firm after delivery. Now, most of the time, if you have polyhydramnios, it is unexplained, meaning there's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with the baby, okay? But sometimes it can be caused by a few things. It can be caused by a blockage in the baby's neck that prevents the baby from swallowing the amniotic fluid or the fluid around it. It can be caused by a restriction in the baby's intestines 
or like if the intestines are kinked out, that stops fluid from flowing down the rest of the digestive tract. Can also be caused by gestational diabetes. And you have little receptors, little channels on the placenta that allows sugar or glucose to cross over. Okay. And if that sugar or glucose is crossing over, the placenta has to process it. And so with the placenta having so much glucose crossing over, it's also doing its own functions. And one of the functions is making amniotic fluid. And so it's churning off a lot of amniotic fluid. And that's how we can say, hey, people with gestational diabetes that's uncontrolled have a higher risk of having too much fluid around the baby. If you have an infection, same thing. We have things crossing the placenta. That can also cause the fluid to be high or actually too low. There are some genetic syndromes that have things like small chin, large tongues, um, anything that can cause issues with the face um, or the neck that can impede swallowing can also cause polyhydramnios. Twins that share placenta. Remember, we talked about this before. If you have monochorionic twins, that means that they share a placenta. The chorion, meaning the placenta, if they share placenta and they're in, a, in, in two separate little sacs with a thin dividing membrane, then you can have what's called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. You can actually have that with mono-mono twins, but it's harder to diagnose because they're in one sac together. But with twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome with monochorionic diamniotic twins, where one twin has too much fluid, the other one doesn't have enough fluid, um, we obviously see that the twin that is taking taking more blood flow can have a lot of fluid. Now, I mentioned this before, but you know, there's a whole episode on this in, in one of the former seasons. Go ahead and check that one out because I'm sure that it was good, but maybe I'll give y'all a little refresher this season on twin to twin transfusion syndrome. Okay. So now that we know a little bit more about how too much fluid affects pregnancy, let's go to some cases and questions. Our first case is a 36 year old patient who is 32 weeks pregnant with her fourth child. She had a normal ultrasound for evaluation of anatomy of the baby at 20 weeks. She denies any medical problems, but reports having issues with feeling like her abdomen is really tight, and she's been having trouble walking without getting short of breath. She had an ultrasound today, and it shows an amniotic fluid index of 46 centimeters. She was referred to you for further evaluation. A couple things. She's 32 weeks. That's important because... If she were 36 weeks with a lot of fluid, we'd be doing different management. She doesn't have any medical problems. That's good because now we know this is not caused by diabetes, right? But I would want to make sure I check her gestational diabetic screen. Every woman in pregnancy should have a one-hour glucose tolerance test. Okay, that one-hour glucose tolerance test is a test that says, is your body resistant to the insulin your body makes? Meaning. Is insulin still telling your body, hey, absorb glucose into the cells, okay? If it is not, then you have gestational diabetes. And that usually goes away after pregnancy. But if anybody has gestational diabetes or diabetes just in the pregnancy, it does put you at risk for diabetes later in life, with most people being diagnosed between three and 10 years after the pregnancy they had with the gestational diabetes. So I want to make sure that she's had that already. But because this case says she has no medical problems, we have to trust that she doesn't have it. 
Um, she's been having trouble walking without getting short of breath. Okay. That can be a sign because if you, pregnant women already have a decreased reserve of, uh, they have a decreased respiratory reserve, meaning they already can't take a deep breath because now everything sort of shifted up. Because the uterus is used to being very small in the lower part of the pelvis. Now it's way up in the abdomen. And at 32 weeks, it's going to be under the diaphragm pretty much. And if you have a lot of fluid, instead of the belly measuring out at about 32 weeks, depending on how much fluid she has, which this patient has 46 centimeters of fluid, then she's going to look like she's way more pregnant than 32 weeks. She probably looks like she's carrying twins right now because she has so much fluid around. So with the shortness of breath, her feeling tightness, then we need to make sure, say, hey, listen, we got one or two choices. One, we can't let you not breathe. So we got to check the vitals and make sure that she's able to, to oxygenate herself properly, okay? If she can't ambulate, some of these people are put on modified bed rest or offered what's called an amnio reduction. It's too early at 32 weeks to outright deliver somebody unless the mom really does truly have signs of decompensation and outright refuses an amnio reduction. So I would want to not do the amnio, I mean, not deliver her just yet. I would offer her either amnio reduction or keep doing close monitoring as long as her vital signs, meaning blood pressure, her heart rate, her respiratory drive remained stable. For an amnio reduction at 46 centimeters, for 46 centimeters, we want to reduce her very slowly. And we don't reduce people down to a normal amniotic fluid level because that actually can put you at risk for rupturing more. We put we reduce down to a comfortable fluid level. So usually we go from 46 to 36, 46 to 32. Um, usually the 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 thought process trying to reduce about 10 centimeters at a time. Okay, some people can tolerate a little bit more, but it takes a really long time to do an amnio reduction. So if we can get a nice amount of fluid off a liter or two so she breathes more comfortably, that is what the goal will be. Now, mind you, an amnio reduction is when we, under ultrasound guidance, we clean the abdomen with like an alcohol solution. After that dries, we look to see where's the best place to go in. Now, with somebody that has a lot of fluid, you can pretty much go in anywhere. We're going to insert our needle into the uterus, and then we're going to, um, there's a little stylet or like a little metal stick in, in the middle of it, of the um, needle we insert. We're going to take that out, and then we're going to hook a suction vacuum to the needle, and we hold it in place. That suction vacuum is going to trickle out amniotic fluid, okay? It's going to be like a slow stream because we're only going through a needle that's the size of a needle that we're drawing blood from your arm, right? So it's going to take a lot longer to get a whole liter of fluid off than if we were using something a little bit larger. But we don't want to use something really big because that can put you at increased risk for us breaking your water. So we sit and hold it. And amnio reduction usually takes about an hour to an hour and a half. So they're not thrilled for things. They're literally not going anywhere for a while. Grab a Snickers, right? Um, Because you're just holding that needle steady because you don't want to wiggle it because that can cause um, the uterus to get, you know, have like a little contraction, if you will, or a spasm at the side of the needle. And sometimes depending on how deep the needle is, it can push the needle out. So we want to be real steady and hold the needle there. And we, we don't want the mom to be uncomfortable moving around because we may have to 
abort that um, that case and end it early. And we end it early. And we haven't gotten enough fluid. That means that we're at increased risk of having to repeat it um, more frequently. But I would um, recommend an amnio reduction. And if a patient doesn't want an amnio reduction, then we would monitor her, see how frequently she's contracting on the monitor. Because some people can have contractions that have too much fluid and not really feel it. And then we would say, hey, if you're having issues breathing with walking, we want to limit walking. Okay. These are people that are put on modified bed rest, meaning you're not trapped to the bed, but we don't want you doing anything strenuous. Because you're going to not be as active, you will need compression stockings on your legs to help reduce the risk of blood clots or deep vein thrombosis. If she did not want an amnio reduction because some people just don't like needles. And if she got to the point where she's like, I can't lay flat, I'm really short of breath, having palpitations, then we'd have no choice but to admit her and do um, give what's called steroids for fetal lung maturity, which are two steroids. One's dexamethasone and one is beta-methasone. Those cross the placenta and accelerate the baby's lung maturity in the event that she needs to be delivered early. So those are her options here. I would counsel her about all of those options and do what's best. But I, or do what her desires are. I would personally recommend an amnio reduction this early in the pregnancy if you have this much fluid. Now, if she were 36 weeks or even 35 weeks, I would give her steroids, again, to help accelerate the maturity of the lungs. Okay, so that decreases the time the baby stays in the NICU. And I would recommend delivering her. If the baby's head down, then I would um, induce her. Usually with people with too much fluid or polyhydramnios, we want to rupture them a little earlier so that we can drain the fluid slowly through the cervix and allow the head to come down and be engaged so that will put the the pregnancy at less risk for a cord prolapsing through or the umbilical cord coming through the cervix. Because again, that's a surgical emergency if that happens. So we want to make sure that we control when the water breaks and we want to guide and and watch as the head comes down and engages with the cervix after the patient is ruptured artificially or like use like a little amnio hook, like a little plastic hook that we use to break the water. So we would put her in labor and then when we can, when she's dilated enough to do that, we would rupture. So we make sure that she's not going to be at risk for a core prolapse. The case pearl for this case is Amnio reduction is done and recommended in cases of severe polyhydramnios in the setting of prematurity. All right, medical intern, what's our second case? Our second case is a 29-year-old who is 26 weeks pregnant with her first child. She was told that her baby has too much fluid. She was found to have a baby with a heart defect as well as a protruding tongue on the ultrasound. She had a genetic amniocentesis, which was negative of chromosomal abnormality. She returns for further discussion about causes of the findings. So with having a lot of fluid around the baby, and it said the baby had a protruding tongue on ultrasound, that to me says that may be the reason the baby has too much fluid. Remember, we talked about anything that impedes swallowing. So if the baby has a big tongue that's blocking the uh, the airway are blocking the um, the esophagus, the throat, 
then that can mean that fluid around the baby stays there and the baby's not swallowing as much. So that is probably the reason, especially since we know that it's noted to be a protruding tongue on ultrasound. The other thing that gives me a little bit concerned is that the baby has a protruding tongue and a heart defect. So for me, this is a chromosomal abnormality until proven otherwise. A lot of people think if you do what's called a non-invasive prenatal screen, which is a blood test that's very sensitive for Down syndrome, 99% actually, sensitive for Down syndrome, sensitive for trisomy 18, which is Edwards syndrome, sensitive for trisomy 13, which is Patau syndrome, that it rules it out. It doesn't rule that out, okay? Then we go to the amniocentesis and people think, since I had an amniocentesis, there can't be anything genetically wrong with my baby. Unfortunately, that is not true. And amniocentesis can rule out things that are more than five base pairs long, okay? It's good. It's great technology that's very small, but that doesn't rule out that there could be a very small chromosome abnormality. And there are millions of single gene deletions, right? And, and that means that either there's one gene missing or there's like one gene that switched for another. And amniocentesis can't, can't test for millions, right? Just like if you do an amnio, you may not pick up sickle cell anemia unless you're probing specifically for that. Why? Because you're talking about a valine and guanine valine switch on chromosome six. It's just a switch. It's there. It's just switched, right? So it can't pick up that. Now, if we knew there was something in the family and we want to specifically test for that, yes, an amniocentesis can do that. But you can't say test for every single gene deletion or mutation. You can't unless you specifically ask the test to, to screen for it. Otherwise, it's picking up things that are over five base pairs long. I say that because syndromes, like unless you're probing specifically for Williams syndrome, Noonan syndrome, these are things that can have a negative, ne- negative um, amniocentesis, but still come out to have the syndrome. Also, you got to realize there are syndromes that are associated with multiple gene defects. And so some people are diagnosed with syndromes, not because of the genetics, but because of the features, right? Like we don't know the clinical significance of X, Y, and Z syndrome right now. We know that these are the chromosomal abnormalities that it's been associated with, but not all people with certain syndromes have a specific chromosomal abnormality. Medical knowledge doubles every five years. And unfortunately, we don't know that Hey, in five years, we may know what this baby has or if this is of clinical significance. But right now, sometimes we don't have that knowledge. So a chromosome abnormality cannot, all of them cannot be ruled out. But if there's a specific thing, then we can rule that out. Usually if I have someone that I think, hey, there's a really high suspicion for a genetic issue, I would recommend a genetics consultation after delivery. And then sometimes what they'll do is they'll do whole genome sequencing or or exome sequencing. So they look a little closer at the genetic makeup to see if there's something very tiny that is missing. Okay. Um, And so that is what I recommend for this patient because of the heart defect and the protruding tongue. What's causing that? Hopefully it's not a defect, uh, a chromosomal defect, but until there is whole exome sequencing um, through a genetic counselor, especially if the baby has features of um, having specific syndromes, I would definitely recommend that. The case pro for this case is, unfortunately, genetic amniocentesis, it's great. It rules out a lot. It's 100% sensitive for things like trisomies, meaning you have too many chromosomes 
but it can miss single gene deletions and therefore it cannot rule out all chromosomal abnormalities, okay? Now, mind you, single gene deletions before somebody goes to their OBGYN and says, oh, I'm not gonna get an amniocentesis because Dr. Pliny says it can miss stuff. Single gene deletions are extremely rare. And usually if we have things on ultrasound, if we know this could be either this or this or this, we will let the lab know to run specifically for those specific tests. And if it can't run for those specific tests, we usually do do our research to see if there's a lab that can run that amniotic fluid for a specific syndrome that we think is of concern. But, you know, obviously it can't run for all syndromes, right? And doctors aren't perfect. So there may be things that happen or things we see that aren't directly related to a certain syndrome. And so we're not thinking uh, along those lines to get that specific thing screened. But either way, the case pearl, genetic amniocentesis does not rule out all chromosomal abnormalities because it can miss single gene deletions. All right, medical intern, do we have any more email questions or cases? Yes, this one says, Dr. Plenty, I'm 32 weeks pregnant and I was told I have to have weekly ultrasounds for monitoring my baby. However, all the ultrasounds have been normal with the exception of the fluid. So why do I need to be seen every week? People ask this all the time because I get it. Like some insurances, like ultrasounds are not included in the global fee. It's just not. And insurance companies sometimes make you pay a copay every time you get imaging. I get it. It can get expensive. But let me tell you, it is the thing that is most important for your baby to be monitored. People that have polyhydramnios with no other findings, depending on what the reason is, can have some increased risk of complications, including a stillbirth. So we don't do all this to get you to 32 weeks to not monitor you closely to know exactly when to deliver you. Most people that have polyhydramnios, there's an increased risk of stillbirth after the 39th week. And that's why we want people with polyhydramnios that's asymptomatic, meaning you have too much fluid around your baby, but you don't have any symptoms. You're not short of breath. You're not contracting. We want you to live at 39 weeks, okay, and not uh, too far after that because of those risks. Now, a normal test in pregnancy is what's called a biophysical profile There's and a non-stress test. Those are the two main tests we do in pregnancy to check to see if your baby is safe, okay? You may hear, hear your OBGYN say, this is a test of fetal well-being. Okay, that just means your baby is safe. That test, if you have a biophysical profile or what's abbreviated as a BPP, that tells us a baby has less than a one in 4,000 chance of stillbirth. It reassures us that although you have a lot of fluid around this baby, this baby for the next week is safe. And like I say, BPP is only reassuring for the next seven to 10 days. So that's why we do it every single week to make sure that your baby stays safe. Now, biophysical profiles, they're short, right? They can last up to 30 minutes, but most of the time, breathing is the last thing to go. If we have breathing, then it's 10 minutes and you're out of the door. So it's not a fast ultrasound. It's not a very expensive ultrasound either, but it is something that needs to be done. The alternative to a biophysical profile is two non-stress tests. So twice weekly non-stress tests are equivalent to once weekly biophysical profiles. Now, a non-stress test is when they put the baby on the monitor, they listen to the baby's heart tones for about 20 minutes, 
to make sure that the heart rate's not dropping and it looks appropriate for the gestational age that you are, meaning how far along that you are. Two of those at opposite ends of the week is equivalent to a biophysical profile. Now, some people, some OBs are very cautious. They want you to get the biophysical profile at one end of the week and the non-stress test at the opposite end of the week. Now, I don't make people do that just for polyhydramnios or too much fluid, but let's say you have polyhydramnios for a reason, like it's not unexplained or idiopathic. If you have diabetes and polyhydramnios, you need to be seen twice a week. If you have a baby that has polyhydramnios because of a defect, like a heart defect or brain defect, then you also need to be seen twice a week because there's an increased risk of your baby, you know, having high drops or too much fluid around the abdomen or in the brain or in the chest. You have an increased risk of developing that. So I want to make sure that if we see that, we know the timing so that we can deliver you. So um, so it, it, it's only if it's unexplained that you get once weekly testing and delivery at 39 weeks. If you have it for a reason, that could change the recommendation for timing of your delivery and or the frequency of how often you need to be seen for ultrasound or to be put on the monitor. All right, medical intern, do we have any more email questions or cases? And she is shaking her head. No. So thank you guys so much for listening to Pregnancy Pros Podcast. I hope that you've learned more about how having too much fluid can affect your pregnancy. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to share with your friends, rate and comment. If you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or unique pregnancy situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. And also you can DM me because y'all been DMing. So thank y'all for the DMs. Also remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at Pregnancy Pearls. You can also check out the website, which is drnicoleplenty.com for free pregnancy downloadables. And for goodness sake, catch up on the podcast and share me with your friends. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening. Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a Mean Old Lion Media production.